Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. I'm excited you're here with us today. Our mission here at Open Your Eyes is to help all of us open our eyes a bit more to the possibilities and realities all around us. And one of those realities is that you are filled with immense potential. And sometimes seeing things in a new way can unlock that potential. So today, wherever you are as you listen to this podcast, I hope you get a new perspective of how you can think and live better. And as always, please help us by sharing this podcast with a friend. It's likely they could use a little encouragement in their life, and it might just be what they're looking for today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about avoiding the jaws of life. Now, what is the most attended theme park in the world? You guessed it, Disney World. The average daily attendance at the four venues making up Disney World is 160,000 people. No wonder the average wait time at all Disney World rides right now is 45 minutes. This means that each year, 58 million people visit this Florida theme park. And that is 15% of the population of the United States. Now, how much does Disney World make in profits from each visitor? $134 per person. That's not sales, that's profit. And each day, Disney World reports about $21.5 million in profit. The sheer scope of business done at Disney World is staggering. A recent Disney blog reported that the wait time for the Seven Dwarfs mine train was 84 minutes and Peter Pan's flight was 73 minutes. And I can't imagine waiting in line with a two-year-old for 84 minutes. But millions of people do it every year. And many shell out the $555 for three-day park hopper tickets without thinking about it. In the late 1960s, Disney acquired 25,000 acres of barren swampland in Florida. And the first acre of swampland was purchased for $84 per acre. The land was desolate swampland, shallow lakes, scrub forests, and groves. And Disney engineers went to work, creating a system of more than 55 miles of canals and levees to control the water levels. It took six years to prepare the land before construction of buildings could begin. And the first creation of Walt Disney World wasn't the castle, but rather the Seven Seas Lagoon. Now, given the Seven Seas Lagoon is connected to Bay Lake, the Seven Seas Lagoon is home to alligators, lizards, snakes, and turtles, along with all sorts of animal life. And it was on one of the resorts on the banks of the Seven Seas Lagoon, named the Grand Floridian Resort, that Matthew and Melissa Graves decided to stay for their Disney vacation. It seemed like the perfect spot for the Graves to play with their two-year-old son, Lane, and their four-year-old daughter. They enjoyed several days at Disney World, and on the third day of their stay, about 9.15 at night, they were on the beach and the children were collecting water in buckets from the lake to make sandcastles. Lane, the two-year-old, was standing in about ankle-deep water. Now, 9.15 is prime alligator hunting time. For whatever reason, alligators are significantly more active at dusk. They live in lakes and ponds and marshes and swamps throughout the southeastern United States, and they typically lie motionless and wait for prey. 
And alligators eat fish, birds, and turtles, and small mammals, people's pets from time to time, and white-tailed deer. The snouts and faces of alligators have pressure receptors called dome receptors that detect the slightest disturbance on the water's surface around them. Large prey can't be swallowed whole, so the alligator will stash an animal underwater, pinning it under a submerged log for safekeeping. And once the animal is half-rotted, the alligator can tear off chunks of meat to eat. And the alligator's teeth are designed for gripping and locking, not crushing or chewing. Now, an alligator can run at nine miles per hour, but swim much faster. And pets, such as dogs, are the most likely to be attacked by alligators because of the pet's smaller size. And this is the reason most Floridians know how to keep pets and children away from the water's edge in areas known to have alligators. Well, Matthew and Melissa were from Nebraska, and there aren't many alligators in Nebraska. And that night, outside a Disney hotel with lots of people coming and going, who would have thought an alligator was lurking nearby? And the lagoon itself is not ideal habitat for alligators. It has few shallow shelves where alligators can sunbathe and warm themselves, and it's less than ideal for hiding. Well, one hour earlier at 8.15 p.m., a North Carolina woman on the beach reported seeing an alligator about five feet from shore. Two Disney staff members were informed. At the same time, a South Carolina tourist spotted an alligator from his balcony. He pointed out the alligator to a Disney employee, but the sighting continued to bother him. An hour later, as the graves were playing in the sand and water, he saw the children ankle deep in the water, and he ran out his door to warn the graves of the danger. Well, Matt Graves was a few feet away from his two-year-old son, Lane, and he heard a splash. He thought it was a fish. And when he turned around, he saw his son bent over in the water, and a seven-foot gator had leapt from the water and grabbed Lane around his head and neck. Matt immediately jumped into the water and tried to open the gator's mouth or find some way to get the animal to release its grip on his son. The gator, in a bit of a chomping motion, injured Matt's hands and drugged Matt into the water. As Matt continued to struggle, the gator started to leave with Lane's head still in his mouth. Matt grabbed onto his son's legs to pull him free, but the gator pulled the boy farther out into the lagoon and under the water. As a father, what do you do? You see your son head first in the jaws of an alligator, and you know the gator's going to take your son deep into the lagoon. Well, Matt did everything possible, everything a father could do, but it wasn't enough to stop the attack. Immediately, family members and others called for help, and the sheriff's department responded quickly, but the little boy was nowhere to be found. And after an hour of searching, the sheriff admitted that the boy had been underwater for too long and that he was likely gone. Well, in the hunt for Lane, four alligators were caught and killed. They examined the alligators for traces of the boy's body. But 16 hours later, divers found Lane's body only 10 to 15 feet from where he had been pulled into the lake. They believe the alligator released the boy after the struggle with the boy's father. The cause of death was drowning. The experts said it's likely the alligator was lurking for some time, fixated on the boy, waiting until the moment it would strike. Well, speaking of the attack on the two-year-old Lane Graves, a fish and wildlife expert said, it's a tiny beach. Surrounded by pools, water slides, a restaurant, and a fire pit, I can't conceive that an alligator 
would be in such a busy, small place. And why couldn't Matt pry the alligator's mouth open and save his son? Well, an alligator's bite has 3,000 pounds per square inch of force. That compares to you chewing a steak at 150 pounds per square inch, or a lion biting at 1,000 pounds per square inch. And once that alligator decided the boy was prey, there was little hope of breaking him free from the jaws of life. Nowadays, when we use the term jaws of life, we think of the hydraulic rescue tool used by firefighters to extract people from cars. But there are jaws in our life that hold our future and the way we live in their grip. And like an alligator's forceful grip, these forces in our life can seize control and pull us in one direction or another. And like wading in ankle-deep water at a populated Disney resort, you might not be aware of the danger of these jaws or forces in everyday life because you can't really see them. But they are lurking and can and do pull many of us down. In my opinion, these life forces rarely attack us in a sudden moment. Rather, they lurk just outside our view and little by little change the way we think lulling us into a sense of security, and sometimes we hardly notice that we're putting down our guard. And these forces change our view of reality, and over time, they pull us in a direction we would otherwise not want to go. So, what are these unseen forces that can change the direction of our life? Habits. Habits can grip your life and carry you in a positive or negative direction. And the difference between the positive and negative is how purposeful you approach life. When you woke up this morning, what did you do first thing? What was the order you did things to prepare for the day? How did you say goodbye to your kids? When you got home from work, what did you do? Did you put on your running shoes and go for a run? Did you eat and sit in front of the TV? Whatever routines you have in your life, these are habits. And habits exist because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort, to make life easier and use less energy in making decisions. Routines are a normal part of our mental makeup, and that's why we can form habitual routines so easy. And the key question is, are you directing your life or are your habits directing you? Because it's quite easy to find yourself in a situation in which you have stopped directing your life and as a result, small habits direct you instead. This is extremely common, and experts believe it is happening to us at unprecedented rates and responsible nowadays for higher anxiety in our world today. I mean, go back 100 years in the history of the United States, and the average life expectancy for men was 56 years old. That's hard for us to imagine. A hundred years ago, you were forced to drive life, to use the time you had for earning a living and providing for a family. And because your parents likely died before they were 50 years of age, there wasn't much wealth passed on from generation to generation. And we forget that with the average life expectancy so low at that time, sickness and disease and injury took a major toll on the quality of life. Today, if we have a tooth infection or bladder infection or even many types of cancer. Modern science and medication allow us to recover and return to a high quality of life. A hundred years ago, we would be bedridden for months or even years. 
Now, in the year 2022, the average life expectancy has increased to 79 years. And amazingly, every three years, the life expectancy increases by one year. That means for someone like me in my 50s, the average life expectancy when I reach my 80s will have increased to 89 years of age. Well, what does all this mean? It means hundreds of millions of men and women are approaching a period of time in life when they have unprecedented amounts of discretionary time. It means that our lives today are filled with choices. And more than any generation in history, we must direct our life and make those choices. And if there's a plague in our generation today, it is more ease, more time, more leisure, and more choices. And all of these things can be blessings and curses depending on how we use them. Use them wisely and you can craft a meaningful life, a life of purpose. Use them unwisely and the opposite will happen. There are forces that push against a purposeful or meaningful life. And the first force, in my mind, is complacency. One author argues Americans are becoming more complacent. Some people socialize on Facebook and get food delivered through Uber while sitting at home streaming Netflix. And people today medicate themselves more, tend to keep to themselves, and move less often. This isn't the same restless America whose grit helped form a major superpower. Now, the synonyms of complacency are self-satisfied, uncurious, casual, lazy, and lacking purpose. And we all have complacency in our life. And by twisting Aristotle's famous quote, we would say, we are what we repeatedly do. Laziness or complacency, then, is not an act, but a habit. And it takes a habit change to turn whatever level of complacency may be in your life or in my life into purpose. And when you do, you find that there's greater rest and peace in a life with purpose. In his book, The Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg explains that MIT researchers discovered a three-step neurological pattern that forms the core of every habit. Then the first step is a trigger that tells your brain to go into automatic mode and prompts behavior. The second step is routine, which is the behavior itself and the action you take repeatedly. And the last step is reward. It helps your brain determine if a particular habit loop is worth remembering or repeating. The more immediate the reward, the more likely the habit loop is to form. For example, if you get immediate relief from stress or rest from labor by laying down and scrolling through social media, the more likely the habit is to form. Think about how easy it is to check your iPhone compared to something more difficult like exercising. When your cell phone buzzes that someone's commented on one of your photos or posts and you check it, you get an immediate shot of feeling good. Exercise, on the other hand, doesn't always feel rewarding until after the exercise is done or later when you see your muscle growth or weight loss. That's why the exercise habit is harder to form. So how do you change this habit loop? Well, right now, if you wouldn't mind, take a second and think about a habit you would like to change. Perhaps it's sitting and watching TV at night, or eating snacks after 8 p.m., or sleeping in, 
or procrastinating the hard things of working your business, for example, or any other habit? Are you thinking of the habit you want to change? Well, first, how and why did that habit begin? And when do you typically engage in the habitual behavior of it? Do you engage in the habit in a specific location? And what else is happening in your life when that habit takes place? So thinking about all of that, answer these three key questions. What is the trigger of the habit? What is the routine you engage in? And what is the reward you feel when you follow that routine? By understanding those things, we can now identify how to interrupt that habit loop and start a new habit. Let's say you've scheduled 10 a.m. as the time to begin to work your business during the day. And you've gotten into the habit of getting distracted on social media when you sit down to work. So how can you create a new habit loop? What if when you first sit down to begin working your business or to make appointments, instead of turning on the computer and going to social media, which is your typical habit, what if you made a list of people you know who need your help or your product and also wrote down how you could help them? This would direct your focus to people and helping others. And that train of thought could occupy your mind rather than social media or news of the day. You see, now you've turned your habit into a new loop. Let's say you have the habit of watching TV after dinner. The trigger is you're tired and you want to veg. Well, what if you interrupted your current habit loop and went for a walk after dinner? The walk will energize you, help you sleep better, and give you energy to make your evenings more worthwhile. Can you see how identifying your habit loop and taking an action to interrupt that habit loop can give you the power to overcome a habit? Now, if you have several habits to change, it can feel overwhelming. So focus on one habit at a time. The key is focusing on the one habit that will make all other things easier. Some experts call this a keystone habit. Keystone habits have ripple effects. For example, exercising regularly leads to more energy and results in better sleep. So if you can change that habit, you have more strength to attack other habits. Habit change also requires an environment that promotes accountability and the behavior you want to start doing. And if your environment doesn't change, you probably won't either. For example, smelling delicious food is a cue to eat, or seeing your television when you get home from work is a cue to sit down. So we have to change our environment. Now, I've also found that purpose has great power. When I have a purpose that consumes my thinking, I am much more apt to create habits to meet that purpose. Harvey McKay said people with a strong sense of purpose know what they want, why they want it, and how they plan to achieve it. Purpose-driven people get in the habit of doing things they don't like to do in order to accomplish the purpose they've defined for themselves. Clement Stone said, when you discover your mission, you will feel its demand. It will fill you with enthusiasm and with burning desire to get to work on it. Well, I found the same thing. When you decide, for example, you want to raise kind children, you'll find habits of patience and kindness will enter into your parenting. When you decide you really want to help people in your business, you'll find habits of perseverance will enter your work. When you value personal strength, 
habits of exercise will become easier. So ditch complacency by connecting with your purpose and changing your habit loops. Now, in addition to complacency, there are other jaws or forces of life that can take hold on our life. One of those is the habit of pushing other people down. Booker T. Washington said there are two ways of exerting one's strength. One is pushing down and the other is pulling up. Have you ever caught yourself in the habit of putting others down? Well, most of us do this in small ways, and sometimes those small ways become habit. They become part of our regular conversations. Why do we like to put or push others down? Well, perhaps it's to make us feel better. Some of us who have lower self-esteem take aim at people to boost our self-esteem. And it works most of the time for a short moment or two. We feel superior or justified, but that feeling rarely lasts. Perhaps we do this because we're envious or even to feel in control. Some people do this as a measure of displacement. Displacement involves taking a hostile emotion from one situation and transferring it to another. A person, for example, may take their stress and anxiety and anger from one part of their life and find an outlet for it by knocking others down. This is an unhealthy and destructive way to deal with one's own difficult feelings, but we all seem to do it from time to time. Whatever the reasons, pushing someone down can begin to take control of our life. It can become a hard habit to break, and over time, can warp our view of other people and rob us of our emotional intelligence. Another sister force is being critical in general. This force seems to be growing in our society nowadays, and that too can become a habit. Now, if you're a baseball fan, you've likely heard the name Mark DeRosa. Mark was born in 1975 in New Jersey, and he loved watching the New York Yankees on television. He loved playing baseball and football, and at Bergen Catholic High School, he earned All-State honors in both sports. Well, after high school, he was offered a scholarship to Rutgers, but chose to walk on the team at the University of Pennsylvania. There he thought he could play baseball and football. Well, he led the football team to an Ivy League championship and passed for almost 4,000 yards in his final season. And after college, he was drafted, not in the NFL draft, but the Major League Baseball draft. He was selected 212th overall, not your highest selection. Well, Mark showed up in 1996 at the Eugene Emeralds, a Class A team. And for the next three years, he worked his way up through the minors. Then he spent three years as a utility player for the Atlanta Braves. That means he wasn't good enough to start at a position, but was good enough to substitute for others when needed. And it wasn't until nine years into his career that he signed a major league contract with the Chicago Cubs and was able to play regularly. He was then traded to Cleveland, then St. Louis, then San Francisco, Washington, and finally Toronto. Along the way, he worked through multiple injuries, including a bad heart, wrist, shoulder, and more. In every sense of the word, he endured teams and people and personalities and stayed committed to his goal despite challenges more than most. Well, in 2012, he was playing with the Washington Nationals. Now, the Nationals hadn't made it to the playoffs in 30 years. And the last time they were in the playoffs was 1981. Well, they had made it to the playoffs. They were down two games to one, and things weren't looking too good for them to beat the Cardinals that day. 
Every press article talked about the Nationals' weaknesses. Article after article said how they couldn't beat the Cardinals and was critical of one thing or another. And many talk radio experts reminded the public that the Nationals hadn't been to the playoffs in 30 years. And on it went. So before the game, the players assembled at the clubhouse and DeRosa stepped up to deliver a player speech intended to motivate them to victory that day. Every player in the clubhouse respected DeRosa. He had a reputation of never quitting, of seeing the best in everyone, and he was respected because of his grit and his sheer force for good on the field. Well, DeRosa told the team that since his days at the University of Pennsylvania, whenever things got tough, he would read a quote from a speech given by Theodore Roosevelt, and on that day, he read it to them. Here's what it said. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who, at the best, knows in the end and the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Well, that day, the Nationals played to a tie until the last inning. And there in the bottom of the ninth, Nationals player Jason Wirth hit a walk-off home run to win the game. Every player said it was DeRosa's example and his quote before the game and his ongoing attitude that inspired their win. Here's the thing. There is an alligator of sorts that lurks beyond the water's edge with powerful jaws that will carry you out to his territory if you let him get a grip on your life. And that gator is the grip of being a critic. So don't let that be you. The critic really doesn't count. It is the person who tries and fails and tries again. So if you've got a habit or two that you've carried along for several years and you want to change it, don't give up. You can change that habit. Now, there are other habits that can take hold in our life. The habits of worrying about too many things or making mountains out of molehills or dismissing people, avoiding difficult things, not speaking truth to yourself and others, and many more. And the point is, we can work to keep the grip of these habits from reaching our daily life. B.J. Fogg says that small habits change everything. He founded the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University, and he suggests that sometimes we fail to change a habit, not because it's a personal flaw with us, but rather a design flaw. You just need the right approach. He suggests there are only three things that can create lasting change. One, have an epiphany, or in other words, open your eyes to a new view. Two, change our environment. Or three, change our habits in small or tiny ways. So he suggests we focus on small actions that we can do in less than 30 seconds. And by doing so, we quickly wire 
new habits into our brain and life. Starting small allows you to find success on your way to larger habit changes. And his format is simple. He asks you to fill in the following two statements. The first statement is, after I. For example, after I wake up and put my feet on the floor, or after I get home from work, or after I sit down to begin work. And the second statement is, I will. After I wake up and put my feet on the floor, I will say, it's going to be a good day. Or after I get home from work, I'll lace up my walking shoes and step outside the door. Or after I sit down to work, I'll think first about who I can help and how I can help them. Because these are tiny habits. They require little or no willpower to do. And as a result, you'll have success and feel good about your progress when you do them. Because these are small habits. They require little or no willpower to do. And as a result, you're more likely to do them, more likely to have success, and then feel good about your progress. So, as we end today, remember, put in place a few tiny habits today that can keep the forces, the jaws of life, from taking you in the direction you don't want to go. Avoid the habit of complacency. Fight off the habit of pushing others down. Do your best to change the loops of habits that may be taking you in the direction that is not healthy in your life. And watch. You will fill your life with purpose and happiness and health. Your healthy life force will be sustained through a force of habits that help you go where you want to go. Most of all, thanks for tuning in today. And please share this podcast with a friend. They need to find a bit of happiness as well. And we'll see you on our next podcast as we seek to open our eyes to who and what we can become.